One of the things that many of you know about me, I've talked about several times, is uh, for seven and a half years, I ran an inner city youth center called Madison House. And this is a, a, a great ministry that reaches out to uh, uh, inner city at-risk kids. And one of, the, one of the responsibilities I had at Madison House is they asked me to run two weeks of summer camp every summer. And so I, 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 I'm looking back and I counted, and I have run 16, uh, 18 weeks of summer camp in my lifetime, Okay. Think about this. I've been at camp for four and, a half week, four, and a half, four and a half months of my life. Four and a half months of camp food. Four and a half months of kids pulling crazy stunts. And four and a half months of teaching kids how not to make purple. I know you're like, well, what do you mean purple? Okay, well, just picture this, all right? Picture you've got 125 um, teenage kids who are away from mom and dad, who are with boys and girls of different, you know, that they don't know. And, and this is what happens. Sometimes girls and boys begin to flirt together. And boys, you know, boys, we always said boys are blue and girls are red. And we want to keep them that way because if they mix, they make purple. So we taught the kids don't make purple. And this is what we did at camp. And uh, I remember at the end of camp one year, I, I, asked, I asked one of the kids I was working with. I said, hey, you know, we're just coming home from camp. You know, what, what did you learn from camp? And his response was probably typical of every camp experience because I don't, I mean, I don't care what summer camp a kid goes to. You kind of have the same message every year, okay? And he said, this is what I learned. I learned two things, Kevin. He said, first, I learned that salvation is by grace and faith alone. Like, I don't, I don't have to work to earn my salvation. It's all me placing my faith in Jesus. That's what makes me a Christian. And I said, good. I'm glad you heard that. He said, the other thing I learned is that I should uh, be sinning a lot less. Like, I shouldn't be sinning so much. I need to work harder. And so this was, his, this was his response. This is what I learned from camp. Salvation is by grace alone, and I should be sinning a lot less. I need to work harder. In fact, if you were to look into just about any church service, you're going to hear, like, one of those two messages. Like, typically, you walk in a church, you're going to hear a message about salvation being by faith and grace alone, or you're going to hear a message about how we should all be sinning a lot less, and we should be working a lot harder. And this naturally can lead to a little bit of confusion. Like, we've got these two battling the ideas, like, like what are we supposed to be emphasizing? Like, what's, 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 what's important? And so it can be confusing, because these ideas, they seem so contrary to each other. Is it faith, or is it works? And so we've had Christians for centuries that have debated this idea. Is it about faith? Is it about works? Which is it? There are denominations that have split over the same idea. Is it about, is it about faith, or is it about works? So if you have a Bible... I'm going to invite you to open up your Bible to James chapter 2. Uh, James, again, this is in the, the second half of the Bible. Um, if you need a, a Bible, just slip your hand up. We've got an usher in the back, and he'll come in and bring one of those up to you. We've been in this uh, sermon series in the book of James for the past month or so. And uh, we've said that James is going to teach us that our faith is worth living. Our faith isn't just this, this thing that we, 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 we ascribe to and we, we vote and we say, I vote for Jesus, and so I'm on Jesus' team. No, James is teaching us that faith needs to be active. It needs to be worth living. And so today we're going to have a message called uh, Visible Faith. And we're going to be in uh, James chapter 2, verses 14 through 26. And actually in our text today, this is probably one of those debated text that we can come to. We can look at this passage of scripture and say, man, there's a lot of confusion based off this passage. Because what happens if you understand the Bible as a whole, you look at this very passage, you say, man, this is contradictory to what I just read in the Bible. 
Because there's the Apostle Paul, who is another writer of the Bible, and, and he says something very different. Actually, here, here, here's where the contradiction comes from. Okay? James writes in his book, in our text today, he writes in chapter 2, verse 24, James says, You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. That's what James says. And if you flip back in your Bible to the book of Romans, this is the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul wrote in Romans chapter 3, he said, For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works on the law. And so if we can look at, at these two writers, we can look at James saying this, and we can look, look at Paul saying this, and we say, they're contradicting each other. Like, it's such a contradiction. Like, which is it? Is it faith or is it works? And this leads to confusion. You kind of look and say, well, you've got these two writers of the Bible, and they contradict each other. Like, they must be on opposite sides of the debate. They must be, like, adversaries. Before we think they're adversaries, though, I want you to consider just a couple of things about these two guys. First off, the early church, this is the church after Jesus resurrected, the, the early church in the first century and the second century, they both accepted the teachings of both James and Paul. The early church, they accepted the teachings of both men. So somehow they, they looked at these teachings of these two men that appear to be contradictory, and they said, no, no, they make sense. They, they fit together. So somehow the early church fit these two ideas in together. Second thing you have to consider about the Apostle Paul and, and the Apostle James, the brother of Jesus, is, is these guys, they were friends. Like James and Paul, like they weren't adversaries. They were friends in, in, in life and ministry. We know that James, he was a pastor of the church at Jerusalem. And we know that the, the Apostle Paul, he was a missionary. He would go and, and, and travel the region and plant new churches. And actually, Paul's sending church was out of Jerusalem. That's where he came from. And Paul and, and James, they interacted several times. They, they participated together in the first church council. So these guys, they worked together. They enjoyed each other. They were friends together. And so we've got to understand that even though we look and we might see something being contradictory, we've got to dig in a little bit deeper to understand exactly what these guys were trying to say and what they were trying to mean. Because the reality is when we dig in, what they're saying is not so different. It's not as contradictory as it would appear at a casual, casual glance. They, in fact, would believe the same thing. And so if we're looking at what Paul believed, and we're looking at what Paul believed, here's, here's what Paul believed. Paul, again, he wrote in Romans chapter 3, verse 28. He says, For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. He's saying this is how you come to Christ. You come to Christ by placing your faith in Jesus. Okay? Another well-known passage that Paul wrote, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. This is what Paul wrote in Ephesians to, to the church of Ephesus. He said, For it is by grace that you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your, from yourselves. It is a gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. See, Paul, we can understand from Paul's writing that he very clearly believed that salvation was by faith alone. You become a Christian by placing your faith in Jesus Christ. This is what Paul would teach. He's saying that, that, that grace alone saves you, not works, not anything else, just grace of God alone. But the problem is, when we start talking to the Apostle Paul, we don't want to stop at Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. We, we, we want to stop at verse 9 and have the end be verse 9. But if you actually read a little further, you read verse 10, this is what uh, Paul wrote in Ephesians 2, verse 10. Okay? Before that, he said, it's by grace you've been saved. And now he says in verse 10, for we are God's handiwork, 
created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. And so what he's saying, he's saying, hey, very clearly, I understand we are saved by faith alone. That's how we become a Christian. But he's saying that good works are the results are the result of saving faith. In fact, he probably said it more clearly to uh, the church of Galatia, Galatians chapter 5. Paul writes and says, For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision accounts for anything, but only faith working through love. This is what Paul would teach us. We are saved by faith alone. We come to Christ by faith and alone. But that faith is not alone. It works through love. In fact, Martin Luther, who's a great reformer, you can think about uh, uh, Martin Luther, he, he struggled with this relationship between faith and works. And actually, as he was studying through Scripture, he was the first idea that kind of, uh, he was the first one to write about this idea. And this is what Martin Luther uh, spoke about. He said, we are saved by faith alone, but not by a faith that remains alone. There's something more to that faith. And what, what James or what Paul would teach us is that true and saving faith is all about faith in Jesus. It's not about works. But that faith, when it's true and saving, is by its nature, it produces love. It works itself out through acts that we do. True faith expresses itself through love. And listen, I want us to understand this is what Paul taught. And James is going to teach us the same thing. James has already taught us how his view on salvation. He said in chapter 1, we studied this a couple weeks ago. He said in James chapter 1, verses 17 and 18, this is what James writes. He says, every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. And here's what he said. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of God, that we should be the first fruits of his creatures. He has nothing to do with works. It's about faith in Jesus Christ. That is how we become a Christian. And this is what both of these men believed. Paul and James, they both believed that you become a Christian by faith alone in Jesus Christ. This is that term of, of justification. Okay, this, is, this is what it means to be justified. It means that we place our faith in Jesus Christ. But the problem is, is, is when you look at this word justification, you see that, that Paul and James both use it in different ways. Is have you ever noticed how sometimes words have different meanings? Like sometimes you've got a word and it has multiple meanings. For example, when I was growing up, when I remember when I was a child, like I remember hearing about dope and they used to have these commercials. There's no hope with dope. And this was the commercial. And it was like, you know, dope was something you smoke. It was cocaine. It was not good for you, right? Okay. And then I got a little bit older and I got into high school and, 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 and there was, a, there was a, a kid who said, hey, Kevin, you're such a dope. And I'm like, what? He's like, yeah, you're just an idiot. You're a dope. And so dope took on this different meaning. Dope meant you're a moron. You're an idiot. Okay? And then I got a little bit older again, and I started working at Madison House. And this kid walks in, and he's like, dude, this place is dope. And I'm like, what? What do you, what do you mean, dope? And he's like, man, this place is awesome. It's, 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 it's sweet, man. It's dope. And so you see this word dope having like all these multiple meetings and I get confused. What are they talking about here? Same thing with rock. We can talk about rock and it can be a, a stone. Rock could also be a type of music. It could be all sorts of different things. And so this is what, this is what we need to understand about this word justification. Because the first definition of justification, the first way we understand it is uh, justification means to be declared right. To make right what's been wrong. And this is what he's talking about salvation. This is justification. He's saying you have a debt. 
you have a debt and you have to justify it. You have to write it off. You have to pay it off. You have to deal with that issue. And, the, and this is what James and Paul both agree about justification in this regard. We are justified by faith alone. We are made right with God because of faith in Jesus Christ. But there's another way to define justification. The second way means to prove yourself, to show something to be true. This doesn't mean that it makes it true. It just proves it to be true and real. And what Paul and James would say is this is what works do. Works prove that your faith is genuine and real and saving. And they would agree. And this is what Paul is, this is what James is going to talk about throughout the rest of this passage. This idea that genuine and true faith, it produces something. It produces works. So here's, here's what he says in verse 14. James chapter 2 verse 14. Here's James and he says, What good is it, my brothers, if someone has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? He's asking kind of a rhetorical question. He said, well, no, the obvious answer is no. The obvious answer is, is no. That's what he's looking for. And so James has kind of given us this, this, given us this picture that there's a type of faith that exists. There's a type of faith that exists that does not have any work. It doesn't have any works behind it. So this is a person who doesn't give. They don't serve. They don't, they don't love. <coughs> but sure, they might believe in God. But there's no action behind it. And James here in this passage, he's going to condemn that kind of faith. He's going to say that kind of faith that just believes but doesn't do anything, that kind of faith is dead. It means it's not real. It's not genuine. It never existed. It's not valid. It's not a faith that can save. So here's, here's the whole point of the message. The whole point I want us to understand, you can write this down. This can be uh, what you talk about later today. James is going to teach us that true and genuine and saving faith, it displays itself in genuine love towards other people and trust in God. If we have a true and genuine saving faith in Jesus Christ, it will display itself in a love for other people and a trust in God. And James is going to give us a little illustration of that. Verses 15 and 16. Here's what James says. James says, if a brother or sister is poorly clothed, okay, this is someone... You know, you can picture this. This is someone in the church, someone in your school, someone at your workplace, someone in your, in your neighborhood. You can picture this being the, the kid you see uh, on your way to work every morning, and they're walking to the bus stop, and they don't have a coat on, and it's raining, and they're shivering. James is saying, okay, you see somebody who is poorly clothed. He says, or, or you see someone lacking in daily food. Again, this is thinking about your context. This is finding somebody. Maybe it's a single mom. Maybe it's a dad who's been laid off, and they're trying to make ends meet, but you know, this month they've fallen short again and, and, and they're distressed because they can't afford groceries to get through the end of the month. James is saying, hey, you picture this person, this person who is poorly clothed or lacking daily food. And here's what he says in verse 16. He says, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and be filled without giving them the things needed for the body. What good is that? James is saying, you see this person in need, but you don't do anything to help them. And James is saying, what good is that? What effect is that? And of course, because we're religious, we can sure offer a pious statement. We can say, hey, you know, let me pray for you. You know, Lord bless you. You know, let me pray that God takes care of those needs for you. But you don't really do anything to, to help alleviate those needs. Well, James is saying, hey, that's pointless. That, that there, there's, no, there's no use in that at all. 
In fact, let me just, let me just throw this out. And, uh, and, and, and I want to be clear. You know, I, I appreciate the Unigossal mission and what they do. Okay? But I can picture this happening where, where somebody has a need. Somebody has a need for food or, or clothing or shelter. And sometimes it's easy for us as Christians to say, hey, just go to the mission. They'll take care of you. Like, I see you have a need. Well, just go to the mission. They'll, they'll give you everything you need. Okay? And listen, I think that becomes the same way for us to be very religious and pious without actually having to do anything about it. Because when we just say, hey, go to the mission, that's not costing us anything. We're not having to sacrifice anything for that person. We're just saying, we're just passing the problem along to somebody else. Hey, somebody else will take care of this. You go here, you go there, let them do this. I think the idea that, that James is trying to teach us is why don't we go and do something about it? Like that person, you take, why don't you take them to the mission? Why don't you follow up with them to make sure they got the help that they needed? Why don't you uh, actually give some money to the mission to help cover that person's costs? Like, like, like actually do something about it. This is what James is saying. This is, this is the whole point that he's trying to, to get across. And he says about this kind of faith, he says in verse 17, he says, so also faith by itself, if it does not have works, it's dead. And this was the example. Someone in need, and if our faith does not actually put work into it, James says our faith is dead. It means it's not, no faith at all. It's not genuine. And I read this, and I'll, and I'll be very honest. Like, I'd love to find a way to get around this. I'd love to find a way to interpret this verse differently. Because it's kind of simple enough. Like, this true and genuine faith, it displays itself in a love for others. And what James is saying is he's, he's saying, hey, you also have to understand this in, in the backwards way. If true and genuine faith displays itself in a love for others, if we have a faith that does not display itself in a love for other people, if it does not love the people that James is trying to talk about right here, then James is saying that's not a true and genuine faith. And that's a hard word for us to hear. Dealing with this person that James is talking about, hypothetically, you see them in need. And if we don't have a love for that person, a desire to do something about it, to act upon that faith, James is saying that kind of faith is dead. That means it's not genuine. And that makes me very nervous. Because does he get to the point to saying, if I don't love my neighbor, does that mean I'm not a genuine believer? And this gets very uncomfortable for us to begin to listen to. But this is somewhat consistent in Scripture. 1 John chapter 3. The Apostle John, this is what he wrote. He said, If anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Ouch. I want to, something important for me to clarify. I want to clarify this. Acts of mercy are not a means of salvation. We need to understand that very clearly. Acts of mercy does not mean salvation. But acts of mercy, they are necessary evidence of salvation in our life and in our heart. This is what James is trying to, to process and trying to teach us. And listen, I know that there are many of us in here today. And we've been blessed by God. Like God has been so good to us and, and God's given to us. And listen, you are not blessed by God, so you can constantly increase the size of your house. 
so you can constantly increase the size of your car, increase the size of your barn, increase the size of your 401k. You are not blessed for that purpose. I'm not saying that those things are wrong, but that's not why, that's not the primary reason why God has blessed you. God has blessed you so you can live open-handed, showing, showing that these things, you are not enslaved to them. You're not enslaved to the bigger and the better and, and the things of this world. Because what happens is, is, is I'm going to borrow this term from, from Pastor Matt Chandler, is when we become blessed, oftentimes we become spiritually constipated. We become spiritually constipated. And because here's what happens is we get blessed by God. And, and, and when we're blessed by God, we're supposed to be a conduit. Like, like, like God's blessing comes to us. And then that blessing goes, gets passed on to the people around us. That's the way that God, that's God's intention for his blessing on us. But what happens is we become spiritually constipated. Where instead of being a conduit and blessing people around us, we hoard it. And we, we, we show the true heart. Where we want to build our bigger barns and we want more for ourselves, and we want to make my life better and, and have more of this world has to offer for me. And we become spiritually constipated and hold those things in. And then we make those religious statements. Hey, let me pray for you. I mean, sure, I've got some resources to help you, but, you know, I'm trying to build this bigger barn. So instead of helping you, let me just pray for you that God will bless you. Let me just tell you, you've got a need. Let me just send you to the mission and let them deal with it. This is the point that Paul is trying to make. When we have experienced the grace and mercy of God in our lives, we have truly had that experience where we have, have a relationship, a living faith in Jesus Christ. When we rest in saving faith, our heart should begin to transform. Our heart should change. And that love for God translates into a love for other people. <clears throat> Not that a love for, for people makes us love God more, but rather it's that love for God that translates into a love of people around us. And this is where James is saying, verse 17, faith without works is dead. And listen, when we start talking about this idea of faith without works is, is dead, people start to freak out. Because again, this has been a, a subject that's been debated for years, for centuries. People have debated this idea. Is it faith or is it works? And James, James knows there's a debate. He knows the battle. James pastors a church as well. He's in the trenches of ministry. He, he works with people. In fact, his church in Jerusalem was probably the most religious church that there was. So he knew there was, a, there was going to be pushback to this idea that faith or that works is dead. And so James is going to introduce an argument into this conversation. And he, he just like the people in his church, here's, here's what he introduces in verse 18. He says, someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Here's the argument. James, you have faith. James, you, you believe in faith, but me, I've got works. You know, uh, we, can't, we can't combine these two. We've got to keep them separated. So you've got, you've got faith over here, and you've got works over here, and they have to stay apart. Okay. And so what's happened is ever since the beginning of the church, you've had these two groups of people running around ever since then. You've got over here, you've got the works minus faith people. And these are the people that say you have to earn your salvation. It's not what Jesus has done for you. It's what you have to do for yourself. And so this is the type of people that say you have to be a good person. You have to try really hard. You've got to pay off your karmic debt. 
You've got to give 10% of your money to the church. You've got to, you've got to be baptized. You've got to speak in tongues. You've got to do something. And there are churches that teach this all the time. This is religion. They're teaching the idea about religion. That you focus on yourself as the savior. And you become the savior. Then you've got this other group over here. And this other group, they're the faith minus works people. And these are the people that say, no, no, no. Anytime you talk about works, that's legalism. And we can't have legalism. So, so these are the faith minus works people. And they, they don't give. They don't serve. They don't love because, you know, it's all about faith. Just having my faith in Jesus is all I got to do. Just believe. And then I can sit back and do nothing. I don't have to be overly religious. I can just have faith in Jesus. And so here's a debate. Paul, James has introduced it. Here's how, how, how James is going to deal with this debate. He says in verse 18, Show me your faith apart from works, and I will show you my faith by my works. He says, okay, you say you have faith, show me. Show me that faith. So, so I have a little example for you here. This is a, this is a chair. This is a, a, a okay chair. I found it in the back room here. I don't know much about this chair. I don't know how this chair was designed, how it's been taken care of. But I can look at this chair, and I can say, I have faith in this chair, that if I sit down, it'll hold me. Like, I can have all sorts of faith. I can tell you all of that, that I have faith that this chair will hold me. But until I sit in it, it doesn't really mean much, does it? Now, I can look at this chair and I can say, but I know so much about this chair. Like, I can, I can tell it's got a good solid wood frame and the structure is good. And, uh, you, know, it's, it's, uh, you know, it's padded up here. And I can tell you all these things I know about this chair. And that's good. But it doesn't mean anything until I sit my biscuits in here. It doesn't show anything. And this is what James is saying. He's saying, you have faith that this chair will hold you? Show me. Show me that you have faith in this chair. Show me that you do it. And we can say, well, I don't have to. Like, I, like I, can, I, I know everything about this chair, so I know it'll hold me. So I don't have to sit in it because I have faith that it will. And James is saying, show me that faith. Show me what it looks like. And James is going to now introduce this, this new argument. Well, this is what saving faith is not. Because we can look at this chair and we can have some fun uh, with this chair and understand this idea about faith. Here's what James says, verse 19. He says, this is what saving faith is not. Okay? Verse 19. says, you believe that God is one. You do well. But even the demons believe and they shudder. See, first thing James is going to teach is saving faith is not. Saving faith is not belief. It's not agreement with correct doctrine. It's not having a knowledge. Demons, they know who Jesus is. Demons were with God in the very beginning when God created the foundations of the heaven and the earth. I would say that demons have greater theology than every one of you in here today. I would say that demons probably know the Bible better than I do. Yeah, they don't sit in the chair. Those demons can tell you everything there is about the chair. They can tell you all there is to know about this chair. But demons don't sit in that chair. Knowledge is not enough. Something else Saving faith is not an emotional response. See, James says the demons, they, 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 they hear about the word of God, they know who Jesus is, and it says that they shudder. That word shudder uh, in the Greek, it means to straighten up, it means to bristle back, it means to be, be struck with extreme fear. To be struck with extreme fear. Fear is an emotion. 
Those demons, they have an emotional response to the word of God. They have an emotional response to Jesus. They respond emotionally. And this is where we look at the chair and we say, man, I love this chair. Man, I'm emotionally connected to this chair. This chair makes me cry. But I still haven't sat in it. I still haven't sat my biscuits in the chair, even though I'm connected emotionally to it. Even though I have that connection, even though it makes me cry, I still have not taken that step of sitting down in that chair. Listen, these are the type of people who are always talking about God. Always talking about what God has said to them. About what the Spirit has showed them. Always moving from one experience to another. Always chasing the experience without actually sitting down in the chair to, 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 to grow. Listen, I want to just say, when we say saving faith is not just knowledge and not just an emotional response, those are not bad things. Like, like if we have saving faith in Jesus, like we should have some knowledge uh, of who God is and, and what he's done for us. And we should have some sort of an emotional response to, to Jesus. I mean, that, that, that's good, but that's not the defining characteristics of saving faith, of true faith. Because what's that defining characteristic of true faith? genuine saving faith. James has already said it. We've already summarized it. True saving faith, the defining characteristic is that it displays itself in love and a trust and a love of love for others and a trust in God. Looking at this chair, true and saving faith for this chair is when I actually sit my biscuits in the chair and say, okay, I said I trust you. Now I'm really going to do it. I actually haven't sat in it till now. So I'm really glad it, it is holding up. I like this is a picture of what saving faith is. And faith alone saves you. But again, like Martin Luther said, that faith is not alone. In response to this argument, here's, here's what James says. He says, I understand you're going to struggle through this. I understand that we struggle with this idea of faith and works. And here's what he says. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? He's saying, I know you're still, are, you're still struggling with this idea of faith and works. He says, let me, let me show it to you. And he's going to give us two examples, okay? The first example comes from, from uh, Abraham, okay? Many of you know Abraham, Father Abraham had many sons, and many sons had Father Abraham. And some of you have no clue what I'm talking about, okay? Uh, that's, uh, if you grew up in the church, that's one of those old Sunday school songs. Kids, you, kids uh, I think they still sing today about Father Abraham. Uh, Abraham, um, Abraham uh, was... Uh, described in the Bible as the father of our faith. So he's probably an important person for us to look to to say, hey, what would you teach us about faith? And so James, James is going to highlight two important events in the life of Abraham. Okay? The first event occurred in Genesis chapter 15. God had given Abraham a promise. He said, Abraham, I'm going to make you into a great nation. I'm going to give you a multitude of, of, of sons and daughters, and, and you're going to be... Uh, uh, too many ancestors that you can't even count, like the sand of the sea. I'm going to give you so many. And, and Abraham, the problem was he was an old man. And his wife had never had a child. Okay? But, but God gave him this promise. And Abraham believed God. And this is what uh, Genesis chapter 15 verse 6 says. It says, And when Abraham believed the Lord, God counted it to him as righteousness. And James actually quotes that same exact verse in chapter uh, in verse 23, he says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteous. God declared Abraham righteous. And why did God declare him righteous? Was it because he did something? Was it because he had lived a faithful life? 
was because of his good works? No. Abraham was declared righteous because he believed God and his faith and trust in God's promise to him. This is the only, this is the only thing that causes God to declare any of us righteous before, uh, before God is that we have a a faith in Jesus Christ. Abraham believed God, and he counted it to him as righteous. How are you and I made right before God? Faith alone. Faith in Jesus Christ, and not by any work. But then what James is going to do, is he's going to point to another story in the life of Abraham, a story about 30 years later, in Genesis chapter 22. 30 years later, Abraham, he waited a long time for this promise. God gave him this promise, I'm going to give you kids, I'm going to give you a bunch of them, And Abraham waited a long time, and finally, finally, his wife gives birth to a baby born in the name of Isaac. And Isaac is growing into a young man. And this is where where God decides in Genesis chapter 22. God says, I'm going to test you, Abraham. I'm going to test you. Abraham, here's what I want you to do. I want you to take your only son. Remember the son that you waited all this time for? Remember the son that's the, the promise that I gave to you? Remember the son that you had in your old age? That's kind of a miracle in itself. That one and only son of yours? Here's what I want you to do, Abraham. I want you to go and sacrifice him. I want you to kill him. I want you to kill your own son. Genesis chapter 22. Abraham takes his son. He says, let's go. Let's hike up to the top of this mountain. Isaac takes the wood for the sacrifice on his back. Carries it up to the top of the mountain. Abraham binds his son. He takes the dagger, preparing to do what God has called him to do. And as he's getting ready, God says, stop. Stop, Abraham, the test is over. Abraham, the test is over. What was God testing Abraham for? What was God looking for? God was looking for Abraham's faith. He was looking for actions that prove that Abraham's faith was genuine, which Abraham had expressed many years prior in Genesis chapter 15. God was looking, hey, is that valid? Is there any action to it? Do you really believe that? So this is what James says as a whole about the story, verses 21, starting in verse 21 of James chapter 2. He says, well, it's not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar. You see, that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and was counted to him as righteousness, and he was called a friend of God. See, that key word was in verse 22. And if you have your Bible, take your pen and circle this word and highlight it and star it. Verse 22, it says, faith was completed by his works said in verse 23, it says that that scripture, that scripture that says Abraham believed God and was counted to him is righteousness. Verse 23 says that this, uh, in this action, his faith was fulfilled. His belief, his faith was fulfilled. See, Abraham is very clear. His actions justified. His actions proved his faith was true and genuine. This is, where, this is where Abraham's already said. He's already come over and said, I believe in this chair. I have faith in this chair. And here in the story 30 years later, this is Abraham actually saying, all right, I said I have faith in it. And so God, I'm really going to ha- actually have a seat in the chair now. 
I said, I believe that you will work things out for my good and your glory. I believe that you're good. I believe that you love me. And now I will act upon that faith to show that it's true and genuine. This is the second type of, of justification. It's what James says in verse 24. He said, you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith. This is a second type of justification. This is that type of justification that proves that your faith is genuine. And this is what Abraham did all those years later. He proved that his faith in God was real and true and genuine when he sat down in the chair, when he obeyed God and did what God called him to do. The second example that that James gives us of, of faith in action is the story of Rahab the prostitute. Have you ever noticed, if you grew up in church, there's no songs about Rahab. There's no Rahab the prostitute songs, which is probably a good thing. But here's what James says about Rahab in verse 25. He says, In the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. Everybody knew who Rahab was. Everybody knew Rahab was a sinner. They knew that she was a prostitute. They knew she was not one of God's people. But somehow, there was something that happened in her life. And she had this conversion experience where she she began to trust God. And and when she began to realize that her life was wrong, she put her faith in God and she begins to make some changes in her life. And as soon as she's converted, she begins to make these changes. Because this is what happens, Christians. Listen, we're not perfect. Rahab was not perfect. But the moment that God became real to her, there were some changes that began to happen. And this is what happens in the lives of Christians. None of us will ever be perfect, but we're different. We're different today than we were the day before. Because we're all in this process of sanctification, of being made like Jesus, that will be fulfilled in the resurrection. Okay? So here's, here's Rahab. God's people, God's spies, they show up in town. And God's people are in danger. Their, their, uh, their lives are in danger. They're, they're going to lose their lives. And here's what Rahab did. She endangered herself by helping God's people. She looked at God's spies and said, I'm going to help you escape. She didn't just say, you know what? I trust God. I have faith in God. Now I'm going to pray for you spies and hope that you get out. Good luck. No, no. What she did, she said, I'm here to help. She said, because God loves me, I love you. Because God served me, I'm here to serve you. Because God got me out of my mess, I'm here to come and help you get out of your mess. Because because this is God's work for me, and God's work in me, and God works uh, through me for your benefit. This is the, the this is the example of Rahab. This is the same principle. Rahab's faith was justified and proved by her actions. She trusted God. She sat in the chair. She proved her, her, her faith was genuine. And this is where James just begins to repeat himself time again. And it's the same principle that we talked about from the very beginning. True and genuine and saving faith, it displays itself in a genuine love for other people and a trust in who God is on what he has said and what he has called us to do. And I just want to close by asking, just, uh, just, just ask you to look at this chair for a minute. This chair, we need to understand, it represents salvation. It represents a living relationship with Jesus Christ. Listen, I know that there are some in here today 
Listen, the world's been hard on you. Like you've just been beat up and down. This world has thrown the worst it could throw at you. You've got these burdens that you carry. You've got shame. You've got guilt. You've got remorse over decisions you've made in your life. And you're looking and say, man, is there rest? Is there peace available to me? Listen, this is what Jesus would say to you in Matthew chapter, 20, chapter 11. He says, come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Listen, if you're coming in today, you're saying, man, I'm just looking for peace. I'm looking for rest. Jesus would say, hey, have a seat right here. Have a seat in the chair. Put your faith in me. Listen, there are someone here today. Listen, maybe life hasn't thrown you the hardships. Maybe life's been kind of good for you. You've, you've, you've been, you've been, uh, uh, you have a good life. And you're kind of wondering, man, what is, like, like, what is the purpose of this? It just seems like I'm floating through life. And, and like, like, what is, what is my purpose? Why am I here? Listen, here's a seat. And I would encourage you, if you have a seat in this chair, man, God will give you that purpose. God will give you that reason as to why you exist. There's a second group of people. Some of you that may be in here today. Some of you, you've been trying all sorts of things to try and find peace. You've been trying all sorts of things to, to find a way to make God, to make this chair come to you. And so you've, you've said, all right, chair, I'm going to paint you. I'll make you look really good, chair. I'm going to build a church around you. And so we can come in and worship you, chair. And I'm going to learn everything I can learn about you, chair. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you money, chair. And I'm going to do all these things to the chair and hope that the chair will come to me and, and make my life easier. Listen, if that's you, remember Ephesians chapter 2, 8, and 9. It says, for by grace you have been saved through faith. Not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not by works, so that no one will boast. Listen, if you've lived your life trying to earn God's salvation, listen, you don't have to earn it. Here's the chair. I invite you today. Place your faith in Jesus and experience him in a whole new way. Experience that peace of, of, of a living relationship with Jesus Christ. Listen, there's one more group in here today. One more group, and I, I think this may be some of you here today as well. Some of you, man, you've been in church a long time. You know all about the chair. You know all about how the chair's been made. You, you know the different names for the chair. You know you've read the instruction manual to the chair. You can quote the instruction manual about the chair. You've been in church, you know all about God. You can quote the Bible. You know the names of God. You know all of that stuff. But you've got a situation in your life. You've got a circumstance, a difficulty. And you're facing this and you're saying, man, I'm so overwhelmed. Like, God, can I really trust you with this? God, can I really just give this to you? God, I know what you've called me to do. I know what I'm supposed to do. I know I'm supposed to have this conversation, God. I know I'm supposed to, to, to do this thing. But God, can I really just trust you that you will work things out for me? And you're sitting here and you're saying, I believe this chair. Listen, for you today, let me encourage you, have a seat. Have a seat in the chair and trust God. Trust that all those things that you know about God, that he's good, that he's for you, that he loves you. Have a seat in the chair. And trust that God will work things out for your good and for his glory. Because that's the kind of God that we serve. 
And some of us, all of us need to ask ourselves, what are we supposed to do with the chair today? Where do we see ourselves? Is our tendency to be busy doing church around the chair and not actually sitting in it? Is there a tendency to say, man, I've got these situations in life and I'm just not sure I can trust God? Listen, wherever you are, today, would you sit down in the chair? Would you place your faith and trust in Jesus Christ as your Savior? And however that looks in your life, whatever decision is in front of you, man, you might be one of those stories. You, that decision that you have in front of you right now, that difficulty you're facing, it may be a story just like Abraham. Where God says, I'm testing you. And this may be your opportunity to prove that your faith is real and genuine. So today, make the decision to sit in the chair.